chapter 5 took us into the depths of the Trinity and explained the relationship of the Son to the Father. And you could say that chapter 6, perhaps even more profound, it takes us a bit deeper even. It shows us how the entire Trinity is foundational to our salvation. Every member of the Trinity is involved in your salvation beginning to end. So Jesus has been teaching this hungry crowd. Uh, he did this miracle, providing miracle bread for them. And uh, they're concerned with more food. They come track Jesus down. Their motivation is to get more bread. And he's teaching them that he is the bread. It's meant to direct them to him. But then last week we saw that Jesus shifts this teaching to explaining now the fundamental factor behind any and all faith in the Son. He begins teaching them about the impossibility that his mission could ever fail or be thwarted. At the end of this chapter, at the end of this sermon, there's going to be mass rejection of Christ. Most of those who are following him, this, this crowd of tens of thousands of people, are going to reject him and walk away. And Jesus is going here to, to talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation in order to say that his mission never fails, even in the face of massive rejection. He says that all that the Father give to him will come to him. This is the doctrine of God's unconditional election. And Jesus puts it in a very Trinitarian language. The Father gives a people to the Son to redeem and Jesus goes on to talk about his commitment and the assurance that every one of these the Father has given the Son will most certainly not only believe, but will make it all the way to the end. He will raise them up on the last day. The commitment of Christ to believers to save them all the way. And we said last week that the Son's commitment to save each one of you in this room who are trusting him, it's not only because he loves you, he does. But it's first and foremost because he loves the Father. The assurance that Christ will save you is just as strong and as sure as is his commitment to the Father. The Trinity is very essential to the message of salvation. Well, that brings us to our text this morning. We're going to be in uh, verses 41 to 51. Just a quick uh, review here. First, uh, verses 22 to 34, Jesus exposes those who come to him wrongly. Verse 35 to 40, he explains his identity to where we were last week and the nature of all true faith in him. And now this morning, verses 40, 41 to 51, Jesus expounds on the essential work of God for saving faith and the essential truth of his heavenly origin. We're going to see both of those this morning. He's going to expound more on what the Father does in people such that they become believers. And he's going to expound on the truth of his heavenly origin. Jesus has said something that's begun to bother this crowd. Look back with me at verse 33. Jesus said, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Look down to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. Jesus is claiming to come down from heaven, and that's where this passage begins with the Jews, Jews grumbling in verse 41. Go, 
wrong direction. And as the multitude, grumbling multitude, reveals their spiritual condition, they start to grumble. It says, therefore, verse 41, therefore, in response to what Jesus has just said, the Jews were grumbling and murmuring about him. Now, if you've been tracking with us so far about all these allusions back to the wilderness multitude, manna, Moses, miracle um, bread in the wilderness, these multitudes, your antennas should probably be going up here, right? Verse 41, the Jews grumbled. Point is, they are very similar. They have the same spiritual condition as the first wilderness multitude. They grumbled concerning him. Their grumbling evidence is they are like the first wilderness multitude. Well, in what way? It's because they are grumbling against the new Moses as the Exodus crowd grumbled against the first Moses. We could go to a number of texts. I invite you to one. Look at Numbers chapter 11. The grumbling evidence something very significant about their spiritual condition. Numbers 11. I'm going to read it very quickly. Just skim through it. Verses 1 through 9. The people complained. Same word in Greek. Grumbled or murmured in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. His anger was kindled. His fire consumed some in the outer line parts of the tent. He cried out to Moses. Moses praised for them. Fire dies down. Verse 4, now the rabble among them had a strong craving. People of Israel wept again, oh, that we had meat to eat, dissatisfied with the manna. We remember all that we had in Egypt, the melons, leeks, onion, garlic, but now our strength is dried up. We have nothing but this manna to look at. It was on to describe the manna, what it was like, what it tasted like, and it fell upon the, dew, the uh, camp and the dew of the night. They grumbled and, and complained about God's provision. What was so significant about that? What, what did that grumbling um, evidence? Go to Psalm 106. It's commentary on this event. Psalm 106 verse 24. Psalm 106, verse 24 says, They despise the pleasant land, the promised land, having no faith in the promise. They didn't go up because they didn't trust God, faith. Verse 25, they murmured, same word, grumbled in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. What was at the root of their grumbling? What did their grumbling against God in the wilderness because of the manna? Their discontentment with the man. What did it evidence? It evidenced a spiritual condition that was one of unbelief in God's promises and his goodness. They murmured about their misfortunes. They have God dwelling among them. And all they can think about is their misfortunes. It's one of unbelief. It's one of rebellion to God's purposes. Look what it said in Psalm 106. They murmured and did not obey spiritual condition of unbelief, of rebellion, and in discontentment with God's provision. It's constantly calling God, you're not good, you didn't provide enough. Genesis 3, over and over again. 
And all these characterize this crowd in John 6 as well. Unbelief, rebellion, and discontentment with God's provision. And the result was God's judgment. 1 Corinthians 10 says we must not put Christ to test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, same word, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This crowd in John and everyone in the world has the same spiritual condition. And no one with this heart condition will receive the promises. Not only of the promised land, but of the kingdom, right? What did Jesus say in John 3? Unless you are born again, something must happen radically to your nature, or you will not enter the kingdom. We are unfit in ourselves to enter the kingdom. Our grumbling, disbelieving, rebellious hearts only attract judgment. Well, this grumbling crowd not only um, grumbles against the, the new Moses, but they failed to respond to the test of manna, just like the first crowd failed. So what was the purpose of manna? Think back. What do you think? Why did God provide manna? Certainly it was to provide nourishment for them for 40 years in the wilderness, right? But there is a much more profound reason. Go back to Deuteronomy. Were you going to say something? Possibly to uh, put their trust in the Lord. Excellent. Yep, excellent. Go to Deuteronomy 8. That's exactly right. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Going to do a lot of flipping this morning. So you have your fingers ready. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Why did God give them manna? And how is this very similar to what this crowd in John 6 is doing? In my home. Deuteronomy 8, 3. It says, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. According to this verse, God gave them manna not just to meet their needs, but to make Israel know that life ultimately comes by the word of God, not by physical food. He fed them manna so that they would learn how insufficient it is to sustain life. It can only sustain temporary life, but apart from God's word, it leaves people under judgment and certain death. That's all physical manna can do for you. It was meant to drive people to the word of God. Daniel Block in his commentary on Deuteronomy says, The stark reality was that even though the people had this daily supply of food, none of that generation survived. They had plenty to eat and their stomachs were full, but they died. To live, one must also ingest or take to heart the life-giving commands that come from the mouth of Yahweh and let them energize one to do his will. And Jesus is going to make this exact point in a few verses. Just look down, if you will, in John 6, verse 49. Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus has come not as Torah, but as the Word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the 
word, the fullest and final display and manifestation of the person of God. He gave this food in the wilderness just like the manna in order to drive people to himself. And the same is true for us. The stuff of this life, the food, the clothes, the cars, the everything we have in this life is screaming out to us the insufficiency of it, the emptiness of it. All it can do is sustain your life now and leave you under the judgment of God if that is all your life consists in. It's screaming out to us that we need something more to sustain us beyond the grave to create new life now in our hearts. It's meant to drive us to the Word of God. Little w, capital W, Word, the Son of God. So that is the uh, wilderness crowd they're just like the first multitude. They grumble against the first Moses, and they fail to be driven from the physical bread to the spiritual bread. Now, their grumbling evidence is rejection of Jesus' claim. We said at the beginning that they're responding with grumbling because of a claim Jesus made that he has come down from heaven. So what is Jesus claiming? When he says he has come down from heaven, what is that what does that mean? What is the nature of this claim? I think he's saying three things. Number one, I think he is claiming pre-existence. He's come down from heaven. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, before his incarnation. He is pre-existent God. Number two, he is also claiming to possess authoritative revelation. Look back to chapter 3, if you will, of John 3.13. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This verse says no one has gone into heaven and come back to bring us authoritative revelation. So you can go home and throw away all the books about some kid having a dream and going to heaven and coming back and telling us what it was like. No one does that. That's what this verse says. No one has ascended to heaven and come down. Only one, the Son, brings authoritative revelation about God, who he is, the nature of man and the nature of redemption. Only the Son has that. Number three. He is of heavenly origin and has come in a fleshly way. Jesus is a man. He's talking to them right now. He's a person. They know that. There's no doubt about that. And he is claiming as this real human being to be pre-existent God. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So those are what Jesus is declaring. He is pre-existent God, possesses absolute revelation, and he's come in a very fleshly way. So why are they offended at that? Why um, do they grumble because of that? They understand what Jesus is claiming. That's not the problem. They get it. The offense lies here. The crowds presume knowledge of Jesus' origin. Look at verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, they presume to know his origin. 
it's not hard to assume that many of these Galileans knew um, Jesus, knew his parents. His family had probably relocated to Capernaum as their hometown for quite a while. He's teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum right now, so they know him. They know his parents. They know his earthly origin, or so they think. And this is a resurfaces a few times in John, and it's just thick with irony. Go over to John 7, if you will. Verse 27. People reject Jesus because they think they know his origins, but in fact they do not know his origins. 727. They said, but we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That is thick irony because, in fact, they don't know where he comes from. And they think he, they think they do. Me, my yes. question, was it being taught or knowledge of the virgin birth mm -hmm. among the people and uh, back then? Yeah. In terms of... Uh, was, was that being uh, yep. discussed? Because uh, apparently, I mean, these people have no, yeah. no idea. Yep. Um, that's a really good question. First, I'd say John, when he is writing this gospel, he's assuming that his readers know about that. Right? He's assuming that his, his readers are familiar with Jesus' virgin birth and where he came from. The crowd at that time, I would say, probably did not know. Later in John, we're going to see in John 8, there seems to be hints that there is um, a common notion that Jesus was born out of sexual immorality, as though this scandal between Mary and Joseph before they were legitimately married, and it's possible that they know Mary and Joseph and they know all about this scandal, or so they perceive it was. Um, so, it's a good question, but yeah, I would say no, they're not aware of the, the virgin birth. The point here, it, here, I think, is that they, they don't press into Jesus, they don't ask about it, they don't seek to know claims. So, it's a good question. Any other thoughts on that? Even Jesus' brothers yeah. uh, didn't believe mm -hmm. that he was the son of God. That's right. So, I mean, I would think that they would have known. Sure. Parents would have told them, yeah. at least. It's good. So, they assume they, they, they know his origin. But number two, there's another reason for offense. The seeming contradiction between Jesus' earthly existence and his heavenly origin. So go back to verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So here's a very physical, fleshly, earthly man. They know his parents. They know all about him. He looks just like an ordinary human. How could he, could he possibly claim heavenly origin? His fleshly existence could not be grasped as existing together with pre-existing God. D.A. Carson said, The Jews think they know all there is to know about Jesus' identity, but they speak in ignorance not only of his virginal conception, but of his true identity. And like the readers of this gospel, they don't know the prologue that the eternal word became flesh. In other words, these Jews jump, stumble on the most essential aspect of the gospel. That Jesus is indeed God, from God, and he took on flesh. The passage is going to end by highlighting why his flesh is so important. So that is the condition of the crowd. They have hearts of rebellion and unbelief. 
They failed to receive Christ rightly, and they stiff-armed Jesus' claims of being God incarnate, all the while being truly human. So that brings us to the second half now of verses 43 to 51. The all-knowing Christ assesses their grumbling hearts. And he's going to tackle both of these. He's going to go after their spiritual condition, and then he's going to go after explaining why his incarnation is so essential for the gospel. He now turns to their grumbling um, in verses 43 to 51. Look at verse 43. He says, Do not grumble among yourselves. In verses 43 to 46, Jesus describes what must happen for them to believe in him rightly. If their heart condition really is the same as the wilderness multitude who fell under judgment, then what hope is there that any of these will believe rightly? Their very need for spiritual life also hinders them from coming to Christ for that life. So let's say there's a disease out there that exists, which is extremely terminal. You get it, uh, 100% chance you will die. But let's say that a remedy has been developed for this disease, which is extremely effective, that if you take this remedy, you 100% will not die. It is extremely effective against this disease. But then let's say that one of the primary ways this disease attacks the body is by attacking the mind such that a person is convinced they don't have this disease. And in fact, the person resists any treatment for this disease. That's a pretty desperate condition to be in, right? And that is the condition that you and I are naturally in. The same disease which is killing them is also blinding them to reality. The disease is rebellion to God. The disease is a desire for autonomy from God. Such a heart condition not only attracts God's wrath, but it makes it absolutely impossible to come to God to receive his remedy. Well, why is that? Well, because the very remedy that God offers confronts our heart of rebellion. It confronts our love for independence from God. It calls us to depend on God for life, and we don't want to depend on God for anything. It calls us to find our life in God, not this world, but we love this world. It calls us to repent from our autonomy from God and receive God's Son for our life. It cuts against everything in our nature. And unless God's grace does something for us more than simply offering a remedy, nobody will believe. And that is where Jesus goes in this passage. And so verses 43 to 44 will describe the essential work of God behind any saving faith. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let's look at a few things here. First is Jesus explains the absolute inability of man to come to Christ in true faith. 
No one can come to me. Coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus. We saw that in verse 35. And Jesus says, no one is literally able. Dunatai, in Greek. No one is able to come to me. No one has the ability to come to me. No one. None. Jesus doesn't try to explain how he came down from heaven. He doesn't try to explain the incarnation here. He realizes there's a more essential root problem. They are unable to believe. He says, don't grumble, not because they're excused in their unbelief, but because their unbelief is owing to their inability. To grumble about his claims is futile. It's empty. The reason they don't believe is their condition of cannot Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians. Look at this. The natural person, the person without the Spirit, does not accept, receive the things of the Spirit of God, the gospel. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's not able. It's a spiritual inability of natural mankind. Is that how bad you think mankind is? Is he really that bad off? You see, unless we understand the true condition of man, we will not grasp him. We will probably deny the truths Christ is about to tell us. Is man really this bad off? Jonathan Edwards called the doctrine of sin that great and important doctrine. So much hangs on getting this doctrine right. Why is it so important? Here's a, practical, a couple practical thoughts. If we don't get this right about the nature of man, the inability of man, we will do ministry wrong. We'll do evangelism wrong. We'll do ministry wrong. If it is ultimately within the ability of man to make a response to God's remedy, then all we have to do is help people along to that point. Coerce them, manipulate them, push them to make a decision since it's ultimately within their ability to do so. But that's not the picture we get here. No one is able, Jesus says. Our job is simply to declare a message faithfully, press it on the consciences of our hearers. But know that they cannot respond unless God does something. This is also important for us because it will protect us and bolster us in the face of mass rejection. That's what's coming in this chapter. Mass rejection. And if you look around at our culture, um, that's the direction our culture is going. Christianity is not going to be acceptable. There's going to be mass rejection of Christ, of the claims of Christians. If you're not bolstered here, you're going to be blown to and fro. The reason people are rejecting is not that there's a problem with Christ or the gospel. There's a problem with the human Heart. So rest here. Know these doctrines of the inability of man. This cannot of man. Jesus says, no one is able to come to me. But look back at verse 44. There is one exception. Jesus proclaims the absolute sovereign work of the Father is the only exception. Verse 44 no one is able to come to me except the Father who sent me should draw him. 
No one can or will come to the Son, apart from this exception. Back in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And now, in verse 44, Jesus says that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. The Father gives a specific people to the Son, and the Father draws a specific people to the Son. What does Jesus mean here by the word draw? In every New Testament occurrence, this word implies a forceful drawing, hauling, or a dragging. So in John 21, it talks about the disciples hauling the net of fish, big net, drag it on board of the boat. Acts 21, the crowd seizes and drags Paul before the, 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 the council, the governor of that place. Forceful dragging or drawing. Nowhere does this word imply a gentle nudge or uh, attraction. There's one place that people like to go in John to deny this. Go over to chapter 12, verse 32. Same word is used here. Verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth by his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. It's argued that God does this drawing for every single individual through the proclamation of the cross, through the gospel. And then that it is up to those individuals now to respond to this general drawing that God does. So Arminians do not deny that God must do something. They say he does have to do something, but that he does it generally for everybody, but that it is ultimately up to each person to make that final step of their own ability. But such an interpretation just doesn't work in this passage. Um, here in chapter 12, it's most likely referring to all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, but rather than doing a whole exposition of chapter 12, I think it's very plain from chapter 6 that this is not the case. He doesn't just draw everybody generally and leave the ball in your court. No, he decisively brings these to himself. Go back to chapter 6. Not only does he draw people to his son, but all whom he draws always responds with faith. His drawing is effectual. It creates what it commands. There's two reasons I think this is the case. Look at verse 37. It has this key word, come. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. Verse 37 clearly declares that those who come are only the ones that the Father has given the Son. And if those who come to the Son are those the Father drags to the Son, according to verse 44, two verses are meant to be read together. Only ones who come to the Father are the ones the Father gives to the Son, and then the ones that the Father drags to the Son, draws to the Son. The two belong together. But look at the very next line. I think that really knocks the ball out of the park. Number three, Jesus declares his certain response to the Father's work. Look at the end of verse 42. Sorry, verse 44. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This line has been repeated three times. Back in verse 39, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day, talking about those the Father gave him. Verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day, talking about those who believe in him. And now verse 44, I will raise him on the last day. Who? The one the Father draws. So look at the tight connection here. Jesus says, no one comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father never draws someone to the Son whom the Son does not raise up. That's what Jesus is saying. The Son always raises up all the Father gives to him, and all the Father draws to him. No dropouts. So that is the essential work of God behind all saving faith. We could spend a lot of time here. If you have questions, please come talk to me about it. I would love to unpack it more, think through it more. We could even block off a few Sundays to talk about it. Look at the next uh, section here. The uh, explanation of this work of God. Verses 46, 45 to 46. We, what we just saw was not enough. Jesus goes on to unpack this a bit more. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus first goes to give us an Old Testament precedence for this. He quotes Isaiah 54, 13, which says they will all be taught of God. Talking about those who have received the servant's work in Isaiah 53, they'll be taught of God. Now what does that mean? They'll be taught of God. Over and over again in the prophets, the prophets declare that the problem with Israel is they have the law of God externally, but they have hearts of stone. They have the word of God, but they have not received it in their hearts. They cannot. Their hearts are stone hard. But the promise of the new covenant is that God would do heart surgery on his people, giving them a new heart, a new ability to receive his word. And you can see that in Jeremiah 31. We do not have time, but go to those passages and read the promises of the new covenant. He'll create hearts receptive to God's law. And so Jesus here explains what it means the Father would drag people in terms of the Old Covenant. The uh, Old Covenant prophets look at the New Covenant. They'll hear and learn from the Father. Number two, the certainty of the results. Verse 45, everyone who hears from the Father and learns comes to me. So there it is again, the certainty, everyone that the Father does this to, draws people, does this work of the new covenant, everyone comes to me. Absolute certainty. Number three, the clarification of how one hears and learns from the Father. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is saying that no person has direct access of God. He's saying, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you're going to have direct access of God to God. He's going to speak to you directly. You're going to hear directly from him. 
Jesus is giving a clarification here. No man has seen the Father. No man has gone to the Father to bring anything down from him. So what's the point Jesus is making? Jesus is saying that those who hear and learn from the Father, that this new covenant work happens, right? Experience this through the words of the Son. The only way to know God is through the Son. So we have a circle here, right? The only ones who respond to the Son are those who hear and learn from the Father. And those who hear and learn from the Father are, the, are who? Those who hear the Son. The point is that the Father does his drawing work through the words of Christ. D.A. Carson again said, Thus, however, much people are unable to hear Jesus because of their moral delinquency, however much they can hear him only if they are taught by God, it is simultaneously true to say that they are taught by God if and only if they truly hear Jesus. Only then will they be truly attracted to him. The argument is, of course, circular, but not vicious. The triune God does everything in concert. The Father effectively draws individuals to his Son, and he does it through the words of his Son. So the Father is never going to draw people to Christ apart from those scriptures, particularly the words of Christ. That's how he does it. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus declared, The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the power of the word of Christ. Rest confident in that in your evangelism. The power of the word of Christ, it is what God the Father uses to bring people to life, to do this work of the new creation. Well, we have one minute left to get through a few verses. Look here. Um, the all-knowing Christ addresses their grumbling hearts, and he now moves on, verses 47 to 51, to describe why his heavenly origin and fleshly body are essential for his identity as true bread. Verse 47 to 48, look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread life. He begins by reminding them his identity of this true bread, that you eat him now by faith, and that now in this life you possess eternal life. The life of the kingdom begun now in your life. The life of God in your hearts now. But then he goes on to give a comparison in verses 49 to 51. First, manna, verse 49, resulted in death. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Could only sustain temporary life. Did nothing for the spiritual life of those who ate it. That's all the world has to offer you. Number two, this manna that Jesus gives results in eternal life. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one, of, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look at a couple things really quickly. The, consummation, the consumption of this bread results in never dying. 
you eat Christ by faith, you have eternal life, and you will never die. That's what Jesus told Mary and Martha in John 11. You will never die. You realize that. You will never die. Life is begun now, and though you'll die physically, death is but a doorway into further, fuller experience of the eternal life already begun to be consummated in the kingdom. You'll never die. Number two, the ability of this bread rests on Christ's incarnation. He's come down from heaven. His heavenly origin qualifies him to give eternal life. Only God can give eternal life. But he's come as a man. Look what he says. The life that I will give the world is my flesh. Because it was in the flesh of the Son of God that he came to suffer instead of bankrupt sinners like you and me. In his flesh he was crucified as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. In his flesh he substituted and accomplished everything necessary so that you could have eternal life. And with all the allusions back to Isaiah 55 and 54, I have no doubt that Isaiah 53 is right here in John's mind. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him. By his stripes, we are healed. That's good news, my friends. Just going through this gospel, man, just makes the gospel so clear, the essential elements of it, and the grace of God should humble you, should make you bold and confident, faithful in proclaiming it, faithful in prayer. Questions, comments, as we close? I would say Michael just reminds me of just how I grew up understanding that I invite Jesus into my heart. <laughs> like, and I just see now how how absolutely perverted that is. That's, that's not at all what's going on. Yep. That God chose a people that's a gift to Christ and that's just a completely different paradigm. Yep. And it's super humbling <laughs> because we, we play no part in it. So that's encouraging. Yep. They're very humbling doctrines. They should fill you with such joy and gratitude and indiscriminate evangelism. You don't know who it is that the Lord has set his affection on from eternity past, you mm-hmm. indiscriminately proclaim Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let the Father do his work. So. Questions, comments, thoughts? All right, guys, tell somebody about Jesus this week. We pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. May Christ be glorified in our lives. Teach us in the service to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Sign up for the 